welcome to Redemption Parker. Again, if this is your first time, uh, thanks for coming out. We're, we're glad you're here for the worship of God together. Uh, if you're just joining us or if you haven't been here for a couple of weeks, we're in this th- series on Habakkuk, and it's the, this question of how, how do we trust God in uncertain times? Now, if, if we did this series on right after September 11th or some other tragedy, you might be more on the edge of your seat. But reality is, uh, in terms of our ability and our scope, all times are uncertain times. No one has promised breath this time next week. And the fact that you're here this week is evidences of God's grace in your life once again. And so we're, we're coming to this prophet that spoke 2,700 years ago, but we're saying that his, his message is timeless. What God has for us is timeless, that, that uh, it's like he's speaking us to us now. He gives us an example of times of uncertainty to, to be able to come before God and say, God, I don't understand, and, and to lament well. And hopefully you, you learn to, to learn to bring your burdens and lament before God. But also God shows Habakkuk and God shows us that uh, actually we're very, very limited. We, we, we see a, a very small piece of the puzzle, but God sees it from eternal perspective. And, and for some of us, that's really disturbing that we can't control our future, that we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, and that we can't uh, arrange things in our lives exactly how we want them. But, but if we can rest in our limitations, Habakkuk shows us that there's peace and joy in the sovereign God. And last week we looked at this cornerstone verse, uh, just a couple verses before what Sandy read there in in verse 4. The second half of the verse we looked at, uh, that the righteous shall live by faith. So in times of uncertainty, in times of, of blessing and prosperity and pain and suffering, the righteous person trusts actively in God. But there was a, a second half to that coin. Uh, in that verse, in verse 4. It actually started with the other half of the coin, uh, talking about the Babylonians, but really just talking about all of us, that there's two ways to live. Verse 4 says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. And so today, we're going to look at that other side of the coin. If, if the righteous live by faith, then what is, what is unbelief? It isn't, we said last week, it isn't just simply not believing anything. That's impossible. Every person who's ever lived has a tremendous amount of faith. The question is, what are you trusting in? What are you hoping in? What, what is your Savior functionally? So to that end, we're going to unpack that. But let me just pray for us one more time as we come before God's Word and just recognize His great kindness to us that he would address us through his word. God, we, we do recognize your great kindness, Lord, that uh, we probably all took for granted that we'd be here today, uh, but, but, but we're only here because of your breath and your life sustains us. And so we thank you for that. And, and we thank you that now uh, your word is alive and active and that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you have a word for us. You have a word for us as a community. You have a word for us individually. And so, Lord, may your church have ears to hear. May the, may the meditations of, my, of our hearts, the words of my mouth now be honoring and pleasing in your sight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the joys of being a father is I get to read to my children, uh, not every night, but most nights, or maybe half nights, uh, and, and read different books. And as they're getting older, I get to read good books. 
So the book we just finished was the first book in The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Rings. So that, now that is some quality literature. You've probably seen the movies. It's a quality movie as well. And, and so you, uh, or maybe you've read it, and I encourage you to do so. But uh, there, there's just some things there from Tolkien's Christian worldview that are just rich and deep for us. And, and you know that through The Hobbit and through The Lord of the Rings, there's this central thing that is, is tying it all together. It is the ring of power. And whoever wears that ring just gets tremendous power. But the ring has a power over the wearer as well. It, it begins to corrupt the wearer. Um, and so good characters in the book have, have, have great uh, ideas of how they're going to liberate people, how they're going to bring justice to the land, how they're, how they're going to use the ring for good. But, but in so doing, it, it begins to corrupt the wearer. They, they end up doing things that they wouldn't normally do and justifying it because they think they're doing good. Now, now, really good characters like Gandalf know that they, they can't even touch it because uh, it, it would be too much for them. And so when offered the ring, he, he has this brief internal struggle, but he resists it. But again, others, others want it. And when you get the ring, it becomes your precious. You can't live without it. And it begins to consume your thoughts and your attention. And, and, and this picture in the Lord of the Rings of the ring of power is this picture that we see in Habakkuk chapter 2, this biblical idea of idolatry. We're going to talk about idolatry because the opposite of uh, trusting in God is trusting in something else. You will trust in something. Uh, someone or something will become a functional savior, a functional God for you, and you will justify, it'll become a, a power over your life, it'll become precious to you. And, and the, 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 in this passage, we're going to see the, the idolatry, not just of the Israelites, but the idolatry of the Babylonians. See, in this book, uh, the, the prophet has, has seen God's people re rejoice and worship God, but then he's seen God's people turn their back on God and go after idolatry. And so Habakkuk prays. He says, God, why do you let this happen? And God says, you're right. I'm not going to let it happen anymore. And Habakkuk's like, good. He's like, but I'm going to let the Babylonians come and destroy you guys. And he's like, bad. Uh, and uh, so he's wrestling with God is sovereign in the, in the universe. And then he says, but don't worry, the Babylonians will get theirs as well because their idolatry is great. Now, I, I have some work to do here because no one walked through these doors this morning with this thought on their mind. My basic problem, the thing that causes me stress, the thing that really takes my life off the rails is my idolatry. No, no one believes that. We believe it, it's someone else, it's some other circumstance. If, if people would get their stuff together, if I just had enough money, if I had this thing or that thing, then my life would get better. But the Bible says and consistently says that we're all idolaters. Now, now you, that, that sounds kind of strange because when we think of idolatry, uh, uh, there, there's two ways to think of it. There's external idolatry, which we see in this passage. That's the carved images. That's bowing down to things that are made by man rather than the God of the universe. But then the Bible is, is more talking about often about the idolatry of the heart. Uh, our hearts, as Calvin said, are idol factories. 
meaning uh, your heart will just constantly crank out one idol after another and and try to convince you that if you get this thing or if you uh, achieve that or if you have that relationship, then you'll be happy, then you'll be satisfied, and our hearts will not stop cranking out idols. Our biggest problem from the Bible is not out there and other people, but if you're honest with yourself, it's in here. The person that lies to you the most and deceives you the most is yourself. We don't believe that because we like to hear our hearts. Our hearts say, you, you, you deserve this. Uh, no one will know. This will feel good. Uh, you've earned this. You, you can have this. It won't hurt anybody else. Our hearts are constantly telling us that. And so we are inclined to believe them. And so that's been the problem from Genesis 3 on. Uh, it's been the problem for you and for me. And so this idea that there's idolatry in our hearts uh, has to be recognized before we can smash the idols. And, and the Bible constantly calls us to smash the idols of our hearts. Now, whenever I can, I want to uh, give you good resources. The best book I know on this is Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and the Only Hope That Matters. This is a great book. But in this book, he, he, I, he defines idolatry for us. And so I, I've got that up here on the screen. Here's how he defines idolatry in the book. He says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagine, imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And again, my first objective is to say that we are all idolaters. We are all serving things that are not worthy of being served. We're worshiping things that are not worthy of our worship. And each culture has their different idolatries. And America has its own idolatries. And so we'll look at some of those, but that they run deep in our cultural DNA. Uh, Alexis de, uh, de Tocqueville, he was a Frenchman who was a, a fan of the American project. In the early days of the American experiment, he, come fr- he came from France and he just surveyed the colonies and, and he just loved Americans. He loved this idea of democracy. He loved all, the, all things America and, and he wrote up his kind of summary about America, but he also exposed some things in Americans back in 1830. He said this, there is a strange melancholy, there is a strange melancholy that haunts Americans in the midst of abundance. He says, even back in 1830, Americans had more than anywhere else in the world, and yet they were melancholy, yet they were unsatisfied, he would say. He says, the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the heart. As Americans, we have this idea called the American dream. And we tell each other, if you achieve the American dream, then you'll be satisfied. Uh, But we've told each other that for 200 years, and we're still searching for satisfaction. Blaise Pascal, another Frenchman, said that the the human heart has a God-shaped vacuum in it. 
meaning that, that God has designed us, that, that there's a, a part of our being, being in his image, that can only be satisfied by relationship with him, but, but our hearts uh, will, will try to seek out anything and everything to put in that vacuum to satisfy our hearts. And if that doesn't work, you try the next thing and the next thing. And so where we're headed on this, we're, we're going to look at the idolatry of the Babylonians and see they're actually not that much different than us. Uh, but then we're going to see, just like last week, we asked the question, why is faith so important? We'll ask the question, well, why is idolatry so bad? And, and then we'll see what's God's gracious provision for us to smash the idols. And then finally, by the Spirit of God, how do we identify and smash our idols individually and our idols together? So let's begin to jump in and just look at uh, the idols of the Babylonians. It, it first gets exposed by God in chapter 1. He's talking about uh, verse 11. It says, they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. So the Babylonians were a military superpower at this point. And the people of Babylon trusted in their, their military superpowerness. And so as long as they were conquering more lands and destroying more people, the people back in Babylon felt confident. They felt secure. They, they rejoiced. The, this is that they were celebrating themselves, their nation as a god. It was a hyper-patriotism that said, we will trust in ourselves. We're the most militarily advanced nation on the planet. As long as we have that, we're safe, we're secure, and we will make sacrifices for our military. And I think as someone who has pastored the military community for 10 years, I love the military, but we make sacrifices for our military. We spend more on our military than the next seven largest armies combined. And there is a type of patriotism that says we are American Christians, but oftentimes it's American Christians. And if you are more American than you are Christian, that's an idolatry that needs to be repented of because God is not trying to make America glorious. He will not share his glory with anyone. And so he comes and he says, if you're trusting in your military supremacy, that's going to fall. It may not fall this year or next decade or 100 years or 500 years from now, but history says it will fall. It is a God that will tumble down. And it will tumble down for the Babylonians, and eventually it will tumble down for the Americans. But that's not their only idolatry. Uh, in chapter 2, it goes on, says, uh, Woe to him, this is verse 6, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. It's this picture of as they expand their power and their reach, they're also growing their bank accounts. They're, they're also growing their wealth and their, their houses and their palaces. And, and it's this picture of greed. And, and the Bible will say, Paul will say in Colossians 3 that greed is idolatry. It's, it's trusting in money. It's trusting in more. That's where I'm going to find my security. As long as my bank account has a certain amount in it, then I can be safe and secure. And God says, that's a shaky foundation. That's a terrible God to trust in. Well, that's not the only thing that they're trusting in. Uh, in verse 9, it says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. This is a picture of 
a trusting in safety and security. This is, a, this is an idol of the suburbs. After all, don't we move to the suburbs to go to safe schools and have safe neighborhoods and, and, and all these things? But if your hope and your trust is in that, it says that a day is going to come where that safety is going to be taken from you. Now notice, <coughs> a few of, many of these idols are very good things. In fact, it's the best things in this world that become the greatest idols. Because as Augustine said, they're disordered loves. They become supreme and ultimate. And so marriage is a good thing, but when it becomes your God, it's terrible. Sex is a good thing, but when it becomes your God, it, it will consume you. Uh, finances, national security, all these things are very good things, but they're very terrible gods. Well, he drops down. He says, uh, Behold, verse 13, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people's labor merely for fire. It's this picture of, imagine trying to hold fire. It's there and then it's not. Like, it's just this grasping at the wind. It's, it's vanity, as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes. And he says, but the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That's what's secure. That's what's going to happen. A couple more things before we just kind of look at some particular American idols. Verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. It's a euphemism for sexual immorality. It's a euphemism for making sex your God. And I don't know that this is uniquely, well, I know it's not uniquely American. It was a Babylonian problem. It was a Greek problem. It was a Roman problem. It's an American problem to say that is my God. And so you're searching for more and more. You're searching for different technique, or you think, if I, I just get that, then I'll be happy, then I'll be satisfied. But it does not deliver. So let's look at one more. Uh, the, uh, well, it says, what prophet is an idol? It's this rhetorical question. It's silliness that created things can become your God when its maker shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trust in his own creation, when he makes speechless idols, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. And then I love this just kind of mic drop verse, like God just dropping the mic, I'm out. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. It's like all of our clamoring, all of our stress, all of our freaking out, all of our boasting, all of our pride. He says, guess what? There is a God. He is on his throne. And Habakkuk's reminding once again that he is sovereign. He is in control. And we will be silent before his majesty. Well, those were some of the Babylonian gods. What, what are some maybe not uniquely American, but particularly American idols? Things that we trust in more than God. Things that we lift up and cherish and value culturally more than God. The first one I would say is the idol of the autonomous self. That, that you are your own God. Your choice preempts any other choice in the world. So, so whatever you decide, whatever you want, and again, our hearts are inclined to this position. But no one lies to you more than you do. And so the best way, this is why we say it's so important that we actually have authentic community because uh, other people can see us lying to ourselves. But if you don't do life in community, 
then you are susceptible to some of these lies. The autonomous self, uh, you know, in, in the Old Testament time, there was all sorts of pagan gods, and God warned his people, don't, don't, don't give yourselves to these gods. But there was one in particular that was particularly uh, abhorrent to God, the god Molech. Do you know about the god Molech? Molech was this kind of father figure god, but, but as all idols do, they require sacrifices. And, and so for the god Molech, what they would do is they would form this image, this bronze image, and then they would uh, start a bonfire at the base of the, the metal bronze, and they would get the bronze image white hot, and, and the gods, the idol of Molech had his arms out like this, and the arms would be uh, 500, 600, 800, 2,000 degrees, whatever the case may be. And then to sacrifice to that God, you would take your infant and you would set him on the arms of the God of Melech. And it was an abomination to the Lord that the image bearers would take and sacrifice their children to the God of Melech. The God of the autonomous self says choice is supreme. And every year we will sacrifice millions of our own for the God of choice in our country through abortion. It's an offense to a holy God that image bearers are dying in that way. Now let me just say this. There is forgiveness for that. Even Jesus absorbed that wrath on the cross that those that would come to him and repent and trust in him, there's hope for that. But as a culture, this God of our choice, we decide what we want is an abomination to a holy God. There's another one in particular that is an abomination. It's this, this idea of the Jennifer Anistonification of movies. You know what I'm talking about? These rom-coms that, that, that just constantly say that, that, that what you need is a relationship. You, you can find the one. She will complete you. He will complete you. And so we search out for, for the one. Or maybe you're married and you're thinking, she's not completing me. She's not becoming my one. My one must be out there. And so this idea that other people, relationships will complete us, become a God for us as a culture. And so we go and we're like, is this the one? Will she complete me? Um, I've said this before and sometimes people are taken aback, but uh, this year we'll celebrate 19 years of marriage and we're, we're looking forward. I love my wife, Jennifer, but Jennifer is just a woman. She does not complete me. I do not complete her. She would make a terrible God, and I would make a terrible God for her. We disappoint each other all the time. We sin against each other. But if, if, if a relationship is your God, then you will either crush that person with your expectations for, for them to be God, or they will crush you by their failures for them failing to be your God. But when you recognize that and you say marriage was never meant to be a God, then, then your marriage can actually have some joy and some freedom in it. And so we do that. But, but I can't meet Jennifer's needs. Only God can do that. And so we're okay with that. We don't complete each other. God completes us. And, and so we, we, we say, no, the relationship gods don't serve us. The, the, the idolatry of the autonomous choice doesn't serve us. So why is idolatry such a big deal? 
Said, last week we said, faith is such a big deal because without it, you can't please God. Without faith, there is no hope or salvation. But the opposite isn't, isn't no belief. It's belief in the wrong things. It's trusting in the wrong things. So in Genesis chapter 3, it's this idea that uh, the serpent comes to Eve and says, is God really good? Can you really trust God? Remember, the question throughout the Bible is, for God, for you and for me and for all of time is, will you trust me? God is saying, will you trust me with this circumstance? Will you trust me with your marriage? Will you trust me with your money and your finances and your future? Will you trust me in all those things? But the opposite is, if I'm not going to trust God, what will I trust in? And, and for Eve, it was, God's holding out on me. I don't trust God. I will trust this serpent. And just the silliness of it, but it brings in death and destruction into the world. It's in the first idol rolls out. Well, God will continue to appeal to his people, and they will continue this cycle of sometimes coming to God and other times trusting in other things. But, but God delivers his people out of slavery in Egypt and brings them through the Red Sea miraculously, feeds them miraculously, gives them water miraculously, is, is providing for them and leading them. And then gives them the law. Now, you probably don't know, maybe you don't know the Ten Commandments by heart, but you probably know the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. And the second one is also about idolatry. And you shall not make any carved images, and you shall not bow down to them. And then it says something interesting. It says, for I am a jealous God. Now, you have to understand biblically what that means. Because when we think of jealousy, we think of like stalker ex-girlfriend or, or, or something like that, like this kind of wicked jealousy. That's not what it means when it talks about God. See, we don't like that. Oprah Winfrey says she abandoned her Christian faith when she went to church one day and the pastor talked about God being a jealous God. And she's like, well, I can't follow a God who's jealous. Well, either Oprah, you didn't listen, or the idols of your own heart said, let's reject this because God's jealousy is out of his love. See, we love the idea that God is love, but we hate the idea that God is wrath. But you know what? You don't get love without wrath. So every parent in here knows that if you really love your kids and you see your kids being mistreated, abused, that you have a righteous anger, a righteous wrath rise up in you on behalf of your kids. If you did not have that, you'd be a terrible mother or father. If you say, well, I just want to be loving and I don't want to step in with any wrath because just keep abusing my daughter. No, because God loves. He is righteous in his wrath. Because God loves, he has a holy jealousy. He created us in his image. He created us to love and worship him. Because he loves us, he doesn't want us to give away our love, worship, and attention to something that's not worthy of our worship and attention. So he's a good, jealous God for our good and for his glory. Whatever you delight in, whatever you rejoice in, you glorify. And God says, only I am worthy of glory. All these other gods are not worthy. So he puts it in his law. But while Moses is up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, he's apparently taking too long. So these same people that have just received that law, they're waiting. I don't know if it was an extra day or an extra week, but they couldn't wait any longer. And they begged Aaron, just make an idol for us, please. 
And Aaron, he's like, okay, well, give me your gold earrings. And he fashions this little golden calf. How ridiculous is that? So that they could worship a golden calf. They were just so desperate to have some tangible means to worship that almost instantly they abandoned the God who delivered them out of slavery in Egypt for idolatry. Just our hearts are constantly pulled to worship something or someone other than God. It's a repeated cycle. Jeremiah, who also lived and prophesied at the same time of Habakkuk, said this. Jeremiah 2, verse 11 and 13, he says, Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? Meaning there is only one God, but there is false gods. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate. declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. Look at these evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's a beautiful picture. He says, here's the evil that my people have, have. They've turned their back on the living God, the source of satisfaction, living waters, and they've gone over to the, the, the garbage heap and they began to dug holes and, and hoping that water would fill it up. And as water fills up, they're like, yes, we, we got it. And, and then it kind of drains out. It's this cesspool. And he says, I don't get it. Why turn your back on the living God who will satisfy your soul for cisterns that do not hold water? You fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus is by a well one day in John chapter 4 and a woman comes up to him he asked her for water, and they begin this dialogue. And this, this woman had idols. Her idols was the God of relationships. She had gone from one man to the next man to the next man to the next man, and Jesus exposes her idolatry. But then he says, he, he, he's basically echoing Jeremiah, and he says, look, you're, you're, you're striving to, to find something that will satisfy your soul. I can do that for you. She said, well, give me this water, He's like, I am the living water. It's, God is constantly calling us back to him. So ultimately, though, even the very best things in life will, not, will fail to satisfy our souls. C.S. Lewis pointed this out in Mere Christianity. I'm just going to read a quote for you. But even the best things are crummy gods. He says this, Most people, if they have really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all, there are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up a subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I am speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we have grasped at in that first moment of longing, which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, and chemistry may be a very interesting job. But something has evaded us. See, 
Our hearts were made for God and God alone. Augustine says, until they find you, our hearts are restless until they find you. See, idols always overpromise and underdeliver. Every idol of your heart has overpromised and underdelivered to you. So, what's God's gracious response to idolatry? Because clearly, we can't do this ourselves. Well, in the midst of God's uh, justified wrath against the Babylonians, He reveals something in verse six, the second half of verse sixteen. He says, "The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory." Now, now the cup in the Old Testament is a, a, an image of God's righteous wrath against sin. It is the cup of wrath it's described as. And you fast forward in the New Testament, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays to his Father. What does he pray? He says, my Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is saying, if it's possible to in any way uh, avoid the cup of the righteous wrath of God against sin, take it from me. But he says, not my will, but your will. And so on the cross the next day, the cup of the wrath of God against the unrighteousness, of, against the idolatry of all humanity gets poured onto Jesus. He takes the cup that we could never take ourselves. But that's not just enough. It's not enough that he takes the wrath away because our hearts still are cranking out idol after idol after idol. Jesus has not just accomplished forgiveness. He does something else. He gives us a new spirit. He gives us a new heart by grace through faith. Ezekiel says it this way. Ezekiel 36 prophesied. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He gives us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not an idolater. The Holy Spirit puts in us a longing for, a craving for Jesus. Now, now we still wrestle with it on this side of eternity. Our hearts still want to believe ourselves, but the Spirit will come along and say, no, Jesus is only, the only one worthy of your See, we needed more than we could crank up ourselves. We, we didn't need to just pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We needed a new spirit. Paul says this in Colossians. He says, when Christ who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. It's this idea that our life is now hidden with Christ. That's our only hope. So how? How do we ruthlessly identify and smash the idols of our lives? Well, I've got some questions we can ask. Obviously, we need the Spirit, but I'm just going to go through this really quick. The reason you want to do this, it's because it's for your joy and God's glory. They're tied together. If you want to have joy and glorify God, you have to ruthlessly eliminate the idols of your heart. Let me just go through these questions real quick. I'll put this up on the, on the website on a blog. They're questions I'm ripping right off of Tim Keller's book here. But in 10 questions he gives to identify the idols of your heart. Listen to these questions. He says, what consumes most of your thoughts and feelings? What motivates the things 
that you do? What are you most afraid of? What brings the highest amount of frustration and anger into your life? What is one thing that can change your mood in a second? What would your friends say is your favorite topic of conversation? What are some things that you feel you can't live without? What brings you solace? What do you yearn for? What is one thing that you wish God would do for you? See, when you begin to answer those questions, it begins to expose your heart. It begins to expose what you're worshiping and what you're trusting. Now, again, that was very quick, and we couldn't possibly answer those now, but I'll put them online, and you can kind of just roll those over. I would encourage you to do that with someone else. So, for example, in, in our culture, we're, like, we, we, we're very sensitive about money, but Jesus always talks about money. Why? Not because he needed your money or wanted your money. He said, because where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So if you're serious about crushing the idols, is there anyone in your life outside of your spouse that you can say, here's my bank statement. Here's what I make. Here's what I give. Here's where I spend my money. See, as Americans, we're like, oh, <laughs> we can't do that. Why? Because it's an idol for us. We, we think it's all about us. But if you're serious about crushing the idols, you'll invite other people to speak into your life. Now, why is this important for us as a community? Because this world out here desperately needs an example of a community in this place full of idols that says, we're going to enjoy the good things of God, but they're not going to be our gods. In a world that says money is a God, we're going to use money in such a way to show that God is God. In a world that says having a house is the best thing in the world, we're going to say, we'll have a house, but we're going to use it for God's glory, not for our own. And the world just desperately needs a community that puts before them idol crushing and true worship. To that end, let me pray for us, and we'll come to this table. Father, thank you for your word to us. Lord, it's hard to recognize and even to uh, admit that we are idol worshipers. Lord, I know I stand up here every week as a hypocrite, as someone who has worshipped idols all week, and so, Lord, I pray that your spirit would be the teacher and that you would do a work in me as you would do a work in every person here. Lord, help us to consider those questions this week and to ruthlessly eliminate, by the help of your spirit, those things that are not pleasing and honoring in your sight so that we might be the righteous who live by faith. Lord, we ask these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.